So at the end of Proverbs chapter 20, we read, The glory of young men is their strength, grey hair, the splendour of the old, which of course means wisdom, as we sang just now. So with those words ringing in my ears, it's my turn to say a few words this morning. And incidentally, while reading, listening to Proverbs just now, it struck me that the book of Proverbs is a good answer to anyone who's, who denies the Bible has been transmitted faithfully down through the ages. To them, I say that all those combined mistakes and inaccurately translated Hebrew has managed to give us an astonishingly set, a wise and insightful set of Proverbs. Quite an accident. So today I want for 10 minutes to focus on the act of being a witness for God and standing up for him. Because we are in the very last days and our opportunities are decreasing every day. And then just to briefly look at what we can learn from Moses. And I'm going to base my remarks on Numbers chapter 20. So I'd like you to imagine that you're with a stranger or somebody you don't know very well, and maybe you've just met them at a bus stop, or maybe they're a friend of a friend, or a neighbour from a few doors down, and you're thrown together through some circumstance. Maybe you're catching a bus, or a storm causes damage in your road, and you get talking, and you're discussing the state of the weird winter, um, the world, life, trouble, you know, the things that people talk about these days and they start to give you their opinion of the world and they say the world's going to end with an almighty nuclear war but with any luck I won't be around to see it or they might use the words life is short or they might be talking about conspiracy theories or things they've heard on the internet and they might say I've heard of this new planet and I remember the Bible saying something about the earth reeling to and fro. And do you think the asteroids are going to cause some problems on the earth? And these are all things which I've heard in the last week. So they give you their opinion. They appear to have passion, maybe fear. And they deliver their opinion with force or laughter or with conviction or with certainty. And you in return have a reaction yourself you have emotion, you have passion, and somewhere at the back of your mind a Bible verse or two appears and you're ready to share your opinion. And as you do, you decide to tell them what you believe in a clear, calm and respectful way. And you try desperately not to come across as arrogant and they appear to listen. You say, I don't believe the world will end like that because God says in the Bible that Jesus will return before people are wiped out and he will forcibly bring peace and justice to the earth. Or you might say, life doesn't have to be short. God says anyone who gets to know him will live forever. Or you might say, I'm not worried about conspiracy theories or global warming or any other problem, because in the Bible we're told that one of the signs of Jesus' second coming will be that people will be having heart attacks because of all the things that are happening on the earth but that these things must happen and it shall get bad. But because I have hope, it changes everything. And that distinguishes us from the people around us who are very worried about all the things coming on the earth, as the Bible says. So you feel glad that you were able to share your opinion. Maybe you also feel brave for standing up for God 
and you think it's worth it as they seem to listen for a moment. Oh, don't talk to me about religion. Believing in that God nonsense is ridiculous. Look at all these corrupt religions, they might reply. Oh, that Jewish book of nonsense. Those rich Jews are secretly controlling politics and manipulating banks to keep us all poor. They only wrote the Bible to control us. It's just fairy stories. And those are also both things I've heard recently. So now it's back to us again, isn't it? But this time it's a harder decision. You think maybe they haven't understood the force of your arguments or your reasons, or maybe they've never really thought about the subjects they're talking about. Maybe you're their only contact. Maybe you're the only person they've ever met who has thought about these things. Maybe all they need is a short jolt of truth to wake them up. And this is your chance to help them. But maybe you also feel that you might be embarrassed if you get rejected again. Or perhaps you're busy deciding whether they're not worthy of any more conversation. That's a tough choice, isn't it? When do we give up on a person? When are we casting our pearls? When do we make the decision that they're just swine and in the end, feeding them pearls is just going to annoy them and they'll feel let down and they'll just get angry with us? As we read in verse 3 of Proverbs 20, it is to one's honour to avoid strife, but every fool is quick to quarrel. Maybe while you're chatting with your neighbour and you look up, you see a framed picture of Darwin hanging in their hallway like I did the other day. And perhaps you know that your, your neighbour is an educated person and you feel slightly afraid that they will say something you can't answer. But you decide against your better judgment that you will give them one more chance to respect God's word as it's the right thing to do. Well, I agree with you, you say. Big religions are corrupt and it's mostly about power and money, but I don't think that's a reason to not believe in God. I've read the Bible cover to cover and I'm telling you, no one who calls themselves a Christian should be behaving like that. It's up to us to think for ourselves and not support these religions because God says that true Christians should be non-violent, loving, peaceful, merciful, respectful of others, kind in our attitudes, sympathetic, self-controlled, that they don't get angry and instead have patience and gentleness. They're not judgmental and we don't rant against people who don't know God. Jesus forbade his followers from any kind of fighting. That's the God I find in the Bible. Have you read it? And as for the Jews, the Bible says that they're God's chosen people that are actually busy being oppressed at the moment. And because of the kinds of attitudes you mention, people are going to try and wipe them out in the war you predicted earlier. And I think whatever we might feel, we should be careful what we say out loud. So now the conversation can go in two ways. Either they reject what you're saying out of hand or they're going to climb down and admit they haven't really thought too much about it. So at this point, manners cut in. Ordinary social manners. They don't know you that well, so they won't ask outright, they won't risk outright confrontation unless they're rude. And at that point, you'll know whether they're a scoffer or not. The chances are that the conversation will die there unless they are humble. But if they're humble, everything changes because the conversation can continue. 
I've never really thought about it like that before, and I've never met anyone who's actually read the Bible. I've got a copy, but I've found it really hard to read, they might say. Or, oh, I'm just saying what I've heard other people say about the Jews. I admit I haven't looked into it. It's just what everybody says. I'm sorry if I've offended you. You see, we have to risk our own reputations and we have to stick our nose out. We have to be prepared to be embarrassed for Christ or there will be a section of the population that will never get the chance to believe. In Luke 9:26, we read, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. It's hard with strangers because we don't want to appear stupid or get into an argument without any reason. We have to overcome the social norms of embarrassment. Occasionally, we might meet someone so aggressive that we might feel stunned and immediately indignant at their complete disbelief. So these are two things I've heard in the last week been said to me. All babies are born atheists until a religious person lies to them and they become believers. And I heard a, an Indian guru say this this week, only yesterday in fact. You only believe in a creator because when you're born, you look around and see the world is already there. Isn't it so, he says. You know you didn't create it, so you say somebody else must have created it. You see nature and all its beauty and you say it must have been created. And because you're, hu you're in human form, you think it was created by a powerful person rather like you. Whereas if you were a dog... You would have a dog god. After all, dog and god are similar spellings, aren't they? And if you were a monkey, you'd have a monkey god. And I honestly, this is what someone said to me this week. So these people are usually the most self-proclaimed wise of all, aren't they? And God is extremely clear on what he thinks about them. In Romans 1.22 we read, Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Their arguments are usually self-defeating, though they might appear clever at first sight. So in the case of the two we've just mentioned, which are very common beliefs now, and you see them all over Facebook, I would answer like this. Atheists, like Christians or Buddhists or Hindus or anyone else, start off ignorant as babies, and we either remain ignorant or we learn. And typically what we're exposed to whether it's atheism or Christianity or whatever, has to do with what our parents believe or which country we're born into. And that's true, isn't it? If we're born in China, perhaps we don't get the exposure to Christianity. But if we're born here, perhaps we get a lot of atheism. But God, if he exists, remains unaffected by any of these factors, does he not? He either is or he is not. It doesn't depend on what I believe or how old somebody is or which species they are or where we live. God either exists or he doesn't. And we're told that looking at creation is evidence of his existence in flat contradiction to what that guru said because he dismisses the idea that knowledge is revealed to the humble and instead he's using arguments to persuade us that we're just imagining a God. But as we know, people who look down on other people are usually foolish. And so it is with atheists and gurus that teach reincarnation.
If we are afraid that our beliefs might bring us trouble or that we might be persecuted like Paul was and so many of the saints, let us remember these words. Who is going to harm you? This is Peter 3, chapter 3, verse 13, the first of Peter. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. But do it with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience, so those that speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. If we're afraid we'll be marked down as idiots for our beliefs, let us read these words from the First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us, who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will thwart the cleverness of the intelligent. Where is the wise man? Where is the expert in the Mosaic law? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made the wisdom of the world foolish? For since in the wisdom of God the world by its wisdom didn't know God, God was pleased to save those who believe by the foolishness of preaching. For Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks ask for wisdom, but we preach about a crucified Christ, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So I think we all know where we stand on that. So what about those people we might call our friends? Those lovely people we've got to know through circumstance, maybe work colleagues we still keep in touch with, or those we've lived right next door to for years. The people who, like Samuel, we consider would be God's choice, but they simply won't accept the truth. No matter how we put it, in this case, we've probably had conversations with them over the years, and we know exactly what they think and we haven't preached to them for months. We might even pray for them, and we're perhaps waiting until circumstances in their lives cause them to revisit their long-held disbelief. So I've actually been invited to, a, to dinner to a house owned by two Oxford-educated doctors who have that picture of Darwin I referred to earlier hanging in their hallway, and I'm actually really looking forward to that conversation where I can appear foolish. I'll let you know how it goes. Because who knows, perhaps these people are just conforming to what all of their friends have already told them is true. And they've never really thought about it. So, so far we've been talking about giving a chance to those outside the household of faith that we know hold wrong ideas. But what about inside the household? We often find ourselves in positions where we notice a brother or a sister who believes something we consider to be an error or is acting in a way that's against the principles of Christ. Do we raise the subject, thinking that we might make a difference, or do we forgive them immediately and not say anything? Do we overlook the things they do or say, as we each know we have faults, rather like David did in his latter life? Or do we stand up for the faith without being judgmental? 
Are we straight with them in our disapproval? Do we have to be friends with them first before we can say anything to overcome that social norm, the manners? Are we wrong to even see the fault in our brother's eye? How serious should it be before we act or say something? What if we see a meeting that has a culture that's not helpful to others, or if we hear criticisms of others? These are all great questions, aren't they, and make us think. And so to answer, I'd like to look at Numbers 10, uh, 20, sorry, where Moses is challenged by the people, and to look at his response. So in Numbers chapter 20, verses 1 to 8, we read this. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There Miriam died and was buried. Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no corn or figs or grapevines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. Let us notice those words. If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. How often have we thought life is hard and we just can't carry on? Wouldn't it be better if we'd never known the truth or that we could just have a quick and easy get-out clause? The Jews just wanted to be swallowed up quickly and have done with all the pain. We don't have the peace of mind we thought we might have. Or perhaps we aren't happy in our lives and instead we have challenges we somehow, and we understand that Yahweh allows us to go through them but they seem just too much for us. We know he never lets it get too bad but then we remember how many of the saints were tortured to death and we have that moment of doubt and we wonder how bad things can get in our lives before Christ comes back. And all of this against the backdrop of knowing that all of the trials work in us patience, but we still somehow feel it's too much. And then we look inside ourselves and we see on top of all this, the same patterns of behaviour repeating in our lives endlessly. And although we recognise that in some ways we've changed to become more like Christ, we also see the same sins cropping up again and again, cycles of sin and regret perhaps. We see our faults, the same old anger or impatience or harshness or unkind thoughts or judgmental attitudes or critical words or gossip or lust or addictive behaviour or lack of love. And sometimes we might not even like ourselves and we wonder how God can put up with us. But instead of being able to repent and change, we seem to just fall back into the same old ways. So carrying on in that chapter, Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Yahweh said to Moses, Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so that they and their livestock can drink. We remember how that when Israel left Egypt, where they had just started their journey to the promised land and they were thirsty, they had, they had seen some miracles, but they needed to drink to stay alive. 
and Yahweh commanded Moses to strike the rock. So Christ had previously already been struck. And we remember the verse in Isaiah 53. He was hurt for our wrongdoing. He was crushed for our sins. He was punished so that we could have peace. He was beaten so that we would be healed. The Israelites experienced the grace of Yahweh in the face of their complaints. And now we see the Israelites here right at the end of their journey, at the very door of the promised land. Moses' sister had just died and the water from the rock had dried up and they were thirsty, spiritually and physically, a time of testing just prior to the promised land. And they murmured. They were dissatisfied. They were unfaithful. The people would have been murmuring among themselves long before they felt brave enough to take the matter to Moses and Aaron. And by the time they did, they were desperate. God commanded Moses, speak to the rock. They already knew that the rock was the source of their life. They were only desperate because it had dried up. So we see in Moses the work of Christ throughout the wilderness journey, tirelessly praying for us, knowing how we feel despondent and in every way how we are tempted and how hard it is for us. And we also see the incredible long-suffering and patient attitude of Yahweh as he meets our needs, providing living water from our rock, grace and truth in the face of complaints. And we all know what happens next. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring water out of this rock? And then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. So think of how beautiful it would have been if Moses had simply spoken to the rock. If he hadn't showed anger or disappointment with the people, but instead had believed in Yahweh's faithfulness, despite the people's complaining failure or faithlessness. One wonders whether Moses knew the significance of the rock, that it represented Christ. Perhaps Moses felt the significance of the first strike was a threat of discipline of the people rather than the grace of God in providing a living sacrifice for us. We're left to wonder. But the lessons that are there so clearly and so kindly are that when we feel under pressure, we should remember that we are right at the door of the promised land. We don't need to murmur among ourselves. Instead, let us therefore encourage each other and pray for each other and be early and instant in that prayer to pray to Yahweh through Christ, who is both our mediator and the source of our life. Because like Moses, we have seen already the amazing grace of God in providing his son for us as that sacrifice. And therefore we should trust in him and be faithful. Christ is the head of our church and the time will be cut short in just one year from that time, Miriam, Aaron and Moses were no longer required. The people had entered their rest. Therefore, the prisoner of, for the Lord urge you to live worthily of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, 
just as you two were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Let us show grace to each other in the face of any disagreements, and let us also be kind to ourselves, trusting in the goodness and faithfulness of our living God to give us what we ask for, to not be scared to ask early in faith, because Yahweh has already given us that wounded Christ, and we should be bold and confident in our requests when we are under pressure. We are nearly home. In all our dealings with those outside and inside the household of faith, let our speech be as the oracles of God and seasoned with salt. In Isaiah we read this, See my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I have put my spirit upon him. He will reveal justice to the nations of the world. He will be gentle. He will not shout nor quarrel in the streets. He will not break the bruised reed, nor quench the dimly burning flame. He will encourage the faint-hearted, those tempted to despair. He will see full justice given to all who have been wronged. He won't be satisfied until truth and righteousness prevail throughout the earth, nor until even distant lands beyond the seas have put their trust in him. <laughs> 